The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We got the fattest piers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out, we take our cut. Dugan, how about you, are you? One thing you gotta understand, Father, on the dock we've always been D&D. D&D, what's that? Deaf and dumb. No matter how much we hate the torpedoes, we don't rat. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. Violence and corruption among Union longshoremen with a stranglehold on the New Jersey docks was the focus of the iconic 1954 film On the Waterfront. New York and New Jersey established the Waterfront Commission just a year before the film to fight that union corruption and organized crime on the docks. But now, 70 years later, New Jersey wants to walk away from the compact. And the Supreme Court justices seem to agree with New Jersey that even though the state's compact is silent about ending the deal, they didn't intend it to last forever. Here are Justices Katanji Brown-Jackson and Sonia Sotomayor questioning New York's attorney. If the reason they were silent was not because they thought this was in a, an agreement for all times, but because they were worried about signaling to the mob bosses that they would be leaving, I don't know that we can draw the inference that you want us to draw. Once you said they didn't intend for it to be perpetual, I think that's the end of the game. Joining me is Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. Kimberly, explain why New Jersey is trying to give New York its walking papers. Well, New Jersey says that the whole point of the commission was to tackle corruption at the ports between New Jersey and New York. They say that it really hasn't worked as effectively as they want, and there's been some of that corruption that's sort of come into the commission, this bilateral commission. But they also say that the commission is over-regulating businesses within that port, and it's really hurting New Jersey's economy. And so they want to get out of the commission and take over the duties that they share now with New York on their own. And why doesn't New York want to let New Jersey out? Well, you know, New York says there's still a lot of work to do. And one thing that they don't say really out loud is that, you know, a lot of of the business that the commission handles actually goes through New Jersey. Most of it goes through New Jersey. And so there's kind of this mismatch between who's regulating the parties and where the regulation is happening. And so New York up front says we still have a lot of work to do. There's good work to be done and we want to stay in. But sort of playing in the background here is this mismatch between how business is shared among the ports. It's sort of wild to me that the compact doesn't address whether a state can walk away from the deal and how. Well, that's right. And that's the whole problem that the Supreme Court is addressing is that both parties agree there's nothing expressed in the compact that talks about termination. And so the whole issue for the Supreme Court is to try to figure out what it was that the parties intended when they drafted the initial compact. And it was really interesting during oral argument that New York's attorney 
suggested that neither party intended this compact to last forever, that they sort of hoped that they would be able to tackle this problem and that there would no longer be a need for it. And that really was a significant problem for justices across the ideological spectrum. And so we saw Justice Sotomayor say that New York had really given up the game by making that concession because that's effectively what New York is doing. It has a veto power that can forever bind New Jersey. And so it really seems like that's where the court is eventually going to land in this case. Yeah, at least two of the justices, Samuel Alito, who I'll notice from New Jersey, and Elena Kagan, who's from New York, were concerned about a state permanently giving up sovereignty to police its borders. Right. And so we saw, you know, Justice Alito during arguments, as you suggested, he said it's really an extraordinary thing for a state to give up some of its policing powers here, policing powers at the port. And so when we're coming up with this default rule of what's going to govern compacts that are silent on termination, doesn't it make more sense? Isn't it more reasonable to assume that a state wouldn't give away the sovereignty without saying something expressed? And I think it was important to him to know that this is just a default rule. Whenever the compact is silent, parties can always change that rule if for some reason one state has to put more upfront costs and there's this sort of incentive for the other state to wait and then terminate before it has to do anything. Look, the parties can anticipate that and they can put into the compact. But we're coming up with a default rule. We need to, to go with the one that makes the most sense. Chief Justice John Roberts did question whether the states can walk away from this pact so easily. This has been going on for 70 years. There are buildings here, buildings there, you know, uh, bank accounts, um, uh, ongoing investigations. Uh, It seems to me it's going to take a long time and hard work to kind of unravel all this. That's right. I mean, that was a concern that Roberts did mention that, you know, if New Jersey walks away, well, there's still all this other stuff that the two parties are going to still jointly have to work on. I think one thing that sort of cuts against that that came out in oral argument is this is a relatively small compact. When you look at some of the other compacts, including the Port Authority between New York and New Jersey, I mean, that's just massive. And you can think if one side were to walk away, there would be sort of insurmountable problems for the other state to try to figure out how to sort all that out. This one isn't as big. The stakes are much, much lower there. And so I really wonder if that's going to have an effect in the case or if Chief Justice Roberts was sort of doing what he likes to do a lot during oral argument, which is sort of play devil's advocate. The reason for this pact was to rid the docks of organized crime. Was there any discussion about whether that's been done or how that plays in? Well, there was not. And I thought that was a real missed opportunity during oral arguments where they could have you know, made it a little livelier by talking about the Sopranos. Um, <laughs> but they did not do that. And I think that's really because you know, the specific issue for the justices is not whether the commission is a good idea, whether or not it's doing its job. It's just whether or not the parties intended for this to be something that both parties have to agree to terminate or if it's just on the one side. So, you know, in a sense, it was sort of divorced from what the commission was intended to handle. Just a few years ago, FBI officials wrote about the ongoing influence of organized crime and corruption at the Port of New York, New Jersey. Did any of the briefs discuss that? Well, I mean, I think both parties agree that there is corruption that's happening And, you know, New York mentioned this. The whole point of the commission was not that there's never going to be any corruption that's happening, but that you sort of lower the risk 
of having agency capture if that agency is spread across two states. So there's really two sort of executive administrations that you're going to have to corrupt. And so, you know, that's not the goal, I think, to eliminate all of that corruption. I don't think that's really something that the commission is shooting for. But here, New Jersey is saying, well, you know, it was intended to limit government capture, but we see it happening now with the commission anyway. And so there's a real dispute about how effective it's been, how effective it could be in the future. But, you know, the question again for the Supreme Court is just one of sort of like statutory interpretation. What did the parties mean? According to a friend of the court brief, there are about 260 compacts with every state a party to at least 25. Does this have any repercussions for those compacts? I think it really depends on how broadly the court rules. And you you saw Justice Jackson really concerned that, you know, they want to come up with the right default rule, but they don't want to say too much. And I think the court was really worried about compacts that deal with boundary lines that sort of set up these permanent boundaries to resolve disputes between the states over what territory is there. Those kind of compacts are the kinds of compacts that you do not want to ever expire and you don't want a party to be able to walk away with it because then you'd just be reopening the dispute. And so it seems like the justices are going to try to craft their way around that. In conclusion, it appears that the justices are going to rule for New Jersey, but it's just a question of how they rule. I think that's right. I think they're going to try to come up with a default rule that you know makes sense for these kinds of compacts where there's sort of a regulatory function to them and really regulating the ports and try not to encroach on other compacts that really deal with land borders that you could see bubbling up into really big issues if those are ones where the parties can walk away from unilaterally. This is a case that goes right to the Supreme Court. They have original jurisdiction here? That's right. We see every term there's one or two original jurisdiction cases, and that's because the Constitution says that when the states are feuding with one another. That's something that we just want to go directly to the Supreme Court. There is another original jurisdiction case that the justices just decided about money grams, and that's all about which state gets to claim money that nobody ever comes forward to get. And so they're really fascinating because, you know, you've got two independent sovereigns coming to another sovereign, the federal government, and asking it to resolve its dispute. And in the MoneyGram case, where there are hundreds of millions of dollars in uncashed MoneyGram checks, who gets to keep the money? Well, Delaware had tried to say that it gets to keep the money, but the Supreme Court sided instead with Pennsylvania and some other states who said they want a piece of it, too. So that's going to be spread around among several states. This was such an interesting case. Thanks so much, Kimberly. That's Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. The Supreme Court has requested a new round of briefings in one of the biggest cases of the term. In December, the justices heard oral arguments in that case, Moore v. Harper, where Republican lawmakers were challenging a North Carolina state Supreme Court decision that struck down a congressional map as being so partisan it violated the state constitution. 
Justice Elena Kagan warned about the consequences of adopting the novel and far-reaching argument of the Republican challengers, known as the independent state legislature theory. It would say that legislatures could enact all manner of restrictions on voting, get rid of all kinds of (coughs) voter protections that the state constitution, in fact, prohibits. Uh, It might allow the legislatures to insert themselves, to give themselves a role in the certification of elections. But since the oral arguments, Republicans have regained control of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And the new court has decided to rehear the case over the congressional maps. So now the U.S. Supreme Court is asking the parties in Moore v. Harper for new briefings that could lead them to dismiss the case. Joining me is Richard Brafald, a professor at Columbia Law School. Let's talk about the importance of this Supreme Court case and how it could upend elections in this country. Yes, depending on what the court does, it could place a significant limit on the ability of federal courts to review disputes involving federal elections, including both reapportionment issues, which is what this case is technically about, but also things relating to a presidential election or congressional elections. So it's, it, it can be quite significant in deciding the nature of and a federal judicial review of federal election disputes. Give us the procedural history of this case in North Carolina, you know, how it got to the Supreme Court and then what happened recently. Right. So this case comes out of North Carolina. It involves the redistricting of North Carolina's congressional delegation. And uh, the legislature, the Republican legislature, passed a plan which was very pro-Republican. And the North Carolina Supreme Court determined that it was an unconstitutional gerrymander in violation of the state constitution. As you know, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that gerrymandering does not violate the federal constitution, but some state Supreme Courts have found that their state constitutions limit or prohibit gerrymandering. So that's what the North Carolina Supreme Court did. And they sent it back to a lower court to come up with a new plan. Uh, Indeed, a plan was adopted, and that's what the 2022 election was run on. In the meantime, the state challenged the state Supreme Court decision and brought that challenge to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court allowed the 2022 election to go forward under the lines done by the lower court in North Carolina. But the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear this case, which raises the question about just how far or what, if anything, a state court can do in interpreting the state constitution to limit what state legislatures can do in redistricting. And then after the November elections, the majority on the North Carolina Supreme Court shifted from Democrat to Republican. That's correct. I think two judges were replaced, and the balance on the court went from Democratic to Republican. Indeed, very soon after, they actually undid one of their voting rights decisions, which had been pro-voting rights. And in the meantime, the the state legislature now in North Carolina has asked the court to reconsider, uh, the North Carolina Supreme Court, to reconsider its gerrymandering decision. And they're looking at it, and I think they've asked for briefing, and they are likely to reconsider it. Before this time, the state court had only decided to rehear cases twice since 1993. So this is a very rare step, and it smacks of partisanship, doesn't it? Right. It underscores the political context. As they did, they redid it with a voting rights decision just a couple of weeks ago, one that was handed down by the old North Carolina Supreme Court just days before the two Democratic justices left office. And now the new court has basically gone back and undid that and has agreed to rehear the gerrymandering decision. It clearly entirely follows from the change in 
partisan composition. So there's now a Republican legislature in North Carolina and a Republican Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has asked the parties in Moore v. Harper for supplemental briefings. Right. What exactly are they looking for? I guess the question has come up as to whether or not, um, with two possibilities. One is whether the case might become moot if the North Carolina Supreme Court kind of reverses itself and, and basically reapproves the old gerrymander. So one possibility is mootness. Another possibility is that the U.S. Supreme Court only takes cases after there's been a final decision by a lower court. And in this case, since the North Carolina Supreme Court is reopening the case, it may be that the decision that the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear is no longer final. So the U.S. Supreme Court would no longer have jurisdiction over it. The U.S. Supreme Court had asked for additional briefing. It wasn't completely clear as to what it was looking for. So there are different theories about why they've done it. But either way, it might lead them to decide not to decide the federal constitutional question that's been raised by the case. Yeah, they did point to the legal provision that gives them jurisdiction to review final judgments or decrees. And so now there's at least a plausible argument that the judgment they're looking at is actually not final. Do you think this is a case that after the oral arguments, the court would like to get rid of? It's not clear. I mean, I see two things about that. On the one hand, it's a very tough case. And I think coming up with a ruling that holds a majority might be difficult. Because I do think, on the one hand, they see that the provision of the Constitution that gives the state legislature the power to write rules for federal elections, you know, for congressional elections and for the election of the presidential electors, is in the Constitution. On the other hand, I think they're kind of reluctant to completely step on the traditional role that state courts have had in interpreting state law. So I think coming up with a ruling that respects both sides of that was going to be tricky. On the other hand, it's an issue that's been coming up a lot lately. It came up in several cases the Supreme Court heard in 2020 that involved issues in connection with the 2020 presidential election. So they might have an interest in resolving this dispute now when there is no federal election pending rather than having it come up again next year. So I can see where they might be cut in two different directions. And remind us of the oral arguments and how they went. It was a very, very long oral argument. I think it went for close to two and a half hours. It's always very hard to read the comments of the justices, but there seemed to be, at least for some justices, some kind of groping to some kind of middle ground where they would sustain the ability of federal courts to review the state court decision about the state constitution, which itself is very unusual Federal courts usually do not review state court decisions of state law, but they'd be fairly deferential. At least that's that's where they seem to be groping that, yes, um, because the federal constitution gives the power to write the laws for, for federal elections to state legislatures, uh, state courts can't go too far in displacing the state legislature's primacy in writing the rules. But nonetheless, they, still, they would want to still respect the idea that state courts still have a role and, and state constitutions have a role. So I think, you know, it is hard to make any predictions about a Supreme Court decision just based on the oral argument. But there seem to be enough justices like Chief Justice Roberts who are kind of groping through some, some sort of middle position. The Supreme Court is asking for the supplemental briefing by March 20th. The right. North Carolina court is scheduled to hear arguments on March 14th. I mean, might the Supreme Court wait to see what happens in North Carolina? Yes, they very well might, though we could argue that even the fact that they're hearing the case in North Carolina means that it's not over. But yeah, and the two things are proceeding on parallel tracks, but kind of paying attention to each other. 
I suppose if the North Carolina court decides quickly, then the Supreme Court will have all the information it needs to decide whether it wants to resolve this case or just drop it as the phrase is improvidently granted and wait for another one that presents the same issues. Let's say the North Carolina court does what I suspect and maybe you suspect they will do, which is put the old map back. Would the Supreme Court be able to continue with the case or would they have no choice but to throw it out because the whole basis has changed? Supreme Court has a lot of discretion in determining what cases it can hear and what cases it won't hear. They might decide that the issue is of significant importance that having already heard the briefing, they're going to go ahead and resolve it or not. Or they might decide that, in fact, since the issue has been resolved below, they don't have to address it. I think they have a lot of discretion here. I think it's very hard to predict what they're going to do. The House Ethics Committee has opened an investigation into a series of alleged unlawful acts by freshman New York Republican Representative George Santos. Santos has repeatedly said he will not resign, though he has voluntarily suspended his participation in committees while multiple investigations are underway into his conduct. I've been talking to Columbia law professor Richard Brafalt. Rich, tell us a little about this investigation. They've appointed a subcommittee to conduct an investigation. They've mentioned several things. They've mentioned violations of the disclosures that he submitted to the House in 2022. Normally, the House doesn't have any authority over people who are not members of Congress, but they do for people who are running for Congress and they would then get elected. So there's some questions about did he lie on his, on his disclosure forms to Congress. There's questions as to whether or not he violated campaign finance laws, which would also be relevant to House ethics. There is a conflicts of interest question involving his dealings with his former firm. And then I think somebody, I think a staff member has raised an issue of sexual harassment. I don't know much about that. Certainly the things that have caught the most public attention are the ones about whether he has, you know, submitted false statements on the disclosure forms he was required to file with, file with Congress and whether he submitted false statements and otherwise violated federal campaign finance laws in his reporting to the Federal Election Commission about his, the financing of his campaign. So what's the power of the House Ethics Committee? Say they find that he, you know, is guilty. Ultimately, there's not much the Ethics Committee itself can do, but they can recommend sanctions, which the full House could vote. And these run anywhere from kind of reprimand, fine, uh, exclusion from committees, censure, all the way up to expulsion. So there's really like a long range of things. I think maybe the committee itself could send some minor sanction to him, but any significant penalty would have to come from the full House. So the only way for him to be expelled from Congress is for a majority of the House to vote him out? I think it's two-thirds, actually. Do you remember the last time that a member was expelled from Congress? I think if somebody is convicted of a felony, there was something a few years ago where there was a member of Congress who was convicted of uh, felonies involving corruption and was expelled. It it seems to me highly unlikely that he would be expelled short of conviction for a felony. And I believe that there is a Justice Department investigation of him. And there's nothing at all that his constituents can do. Not really. No, they can just vote him out next time. And the Ethics Committee is also going to investigate New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What's that about? She went to the Met Gala. And she got all, she got a dress and she got her hair done. She got a place to have her changing done and all that stuff. And she didn't pay for it. She subsequently has paid for it. But I think there were some questions about whether or not she was getting inappropriate gifts 
in connection with, you know, the Met Gala. Are they actually going forward on that? Because it seems like Congress They opened the investigation for the same day, which struck me as a kind of nice parallelism for a Democrat and a Republican. But it does seem as though that whatever she may or may not have done, she has paid all the money. So it just may be, you know, a case of sloppiness on the part of her or her staff. It seems like Congress people get all kinds of free gifts. Well, they're not supposed to. I mean, there are rules about whether you can do from if you're participating in an event or something, that's one thing. But you really shouldn't be getting a free dress, <laughs> uh, an expensive designer dress or getting a, you know, a free fancy haircut. And there are rules against that. You know, and whenever they involve open investigation, they say the fact that we're opening investigation doesn't say anything about what we're going to do. And this issue for her has been kicking around for a while. So she admitted that she took these yeah, things, she, but then she, she, I mean, she basically back. says it was all a mistake and I paid all the money back. That's where she is now. So she's not fighting anything. She has paid for it, but at the time she had not. Thanks so much, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brofault of Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.